Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is taken from Mark and is spread over chapters 1, 9, 11 and 12, starting on page 1002 with chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. The Baptism and Temptation of Jesus. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Moving on now to page 1012, 1012 to chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. Chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world would bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Finally, on to page 117. Page one, sorry, I beg your pardon, 1017, chapter 11, verse 27 through to chapter 12, verse 12. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven? Or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. 
They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. The inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, we thank you that you show us what you're like, that you reveal yourself to us, that you sent your son whom you love to us. And we pray that this morning as we think about Jesus, your son, you would help us and that we would consider our response before him in this world which is full of turmoil. And we pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you uh, sit back down, please uh, do pick up a Bible and turn back to Mark chapter 11. And we're going to uh, look at verses 27 uh, through to 12, 12 this morning. Uh, the Times uh, reported a, a few years ago on people's attitudes towards young people in this country, uh, talking about their intolerance of young people now. It said that more than half of British adults think that children are beginning to behave like animals. Uh, They cited a poll poll in which people describe children in these terms uh, as feral, as animals, as vermin, parasites. It was quite shocking, uh, really, how people describe children. Uh, People felt they weren't safe on their streets anymore. Uh, Maybe it could be summarized in the words of a man who said this. The youth youth of today dress and behave immodestly, have no respect for their elders, nor concern for their futures. Our youth love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for their elders and love to chatter in place of exercise. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble their food and tyrannize their teachers. It seems that people think we live in a generation where the young people have no respect for authority anymore. Indeed, those people who once were considered to have authority don't. Police, teachers, elders are no longer considered to have any authority anymore. I'm starting to sound like a bit of a grumpy old man, aren't I? But the person, that quote that I read was actually said by Socrates, who lived two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, So maybe there's been grumpy old men around for um, a long time. You see, I don't actually think there's anything new in people's views of the youth. And actually there's no difference in any of us. None of us like to be told what to do. 
It's just that as we get older, there's less people around to tell us what to do than when we were young. You see, when we're young, we've got more people that we can rebel against when they tell us to do things. But you see, none of us like to have people interfere with us, do we? We like to decide what we're going to do ourselves and when we're going to do it and how we're going to do it. We want to be our own authorities. We don't like being under authority. But authority is important, is it not, for us all? Now, we know that when we see people who shouldn't have authority exercising it in the error, in the awfulness that comes from that. And we see it when people who should have authority are disregarded and marginalized. You see, and the question of authority was alive and kicking 2,000 years ago as Jesus walked in the temple courts. And we've heard of Jesus' authority being questioned there in verse 27. Do you see it? By what authority? Verse, 20, verse 28 of chapter 11, these people come and say, by what authority are you doing these things? Authority, that's the, the issue in this passage. Jesus' authority is first of all questioned. The presenting issue is Jesus' authority questioned. Now, the day before the incident we've just read here, Jesus had gone into the temple and had seen what was going on and became angry as he saw the house of God being turned into a place of, being turned into a market. And he turned over the tables. He had shown, if you like, disrespect for the authority of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And so those religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, they come to Jesus and demand an explanation. They're hostile and they come to him and question his authority. They ask where he gets his authority from and follow it up by asking who gave him that authority. Now the substance of their demand is this, who gave you this authority? You see, they think they have authority in the temple. And they haven't given Jesus authority to do what he's done there. It's a reasonable question in many ways. Where does Jesus get the authority to do the things which he does? Well, in response to their question, we read of Jesus' counter question. He asks them about John in verse 29. He asks them about John. He says, was John a prophet from God? A prophet who said that one greater than him was going to come. But you see, the leaders, well, they didn't like John. But you notice in their deliberations how they start to think about John. They knew who John was. There is an acknowledgement in their deliberations that, Jesus, that John really was from God. You see in verse 31, if we say from heaven, You see, there's a sense in which they thought maybe John was from heaven. But to say so would mean that it would be exposed that they had rejected the authority of heaven, rejected the authority of God, and so they reject that answer. On the other hand, they don't want to say he was from men. And you see in verse 31, but if we say from men, well, they're unwilling to say he was from men because they were afraid of the crowd. The crowds over whom they should have had authority. And so they will not answer. You see, as an aside, which may help us to understand the nature of this exchange, 
These officials, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who questioned Jesus were not neutral to Jesus at this point. Look a few verses back to verse 18 of chapter 11, where we read this. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. Indeed, as far back as chapter 3, we see uh, the Pharisees uh, going out and plotting with the Herodians how they might destroy him, how they might kill him. You see, as these people come and question Jesus' authority, they're not neutral to Jesus. Uh, They want to get rid of him. They're seeking to trap him, to accuse him, to get rid of him. And so as readers this morning of this passage, we are thinking what a sham the authority of these leaders is. They don't really want to know about Jesus' authority. They just want to get rid of him. Yet now that the question's asked, where do you get this authority from? It can't go away for us. You see, the question now addresses us here this morning. Where does Jesus get the authority from? What do I make of the authority of Jesus? I wonder whether if you've ever considered that question before. Ever considered that Jesus might have authority? An authority which challenges everyone here this morning. Well, the next parable continues to explore authority. And this is what we see. We see authority rejected. Now we've seen the presenting issue, authority questioned, and now we serve the parable and see authority rejected. Now at the end of chapter 11, Jesus doesn't answer their question directly, and yet he does answer in the parable of chapter 12. You notice in verse 1, he speaks the parable to them, to these leaders. And the, the leaders realize the parable is spoken about them, we read it at the end in verse 12. It's where it says they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. You see, Jesus tells this parable about the leaders, a parable full of symbolism. And we're introduced to this vineyard. Did you notice it was planted with great care? And the hearer immediately would recognize here's a description of Israel. In the Old Testament, Israel is often described as a vineyard, carefully planted, carefully prepared. The tenant farmers who come in are those given responsibility over the land, and people would have recognized them as the leaders, the leaders of Israel who were meant to care for and look after the vineyard, the leaders who were meant to care for and tend the people of God, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders the ones who were hearing this parable spoken to them. And it's quite damning, isn't it, of them? You see them constantly portrayed as rejecting those who come to receive the due that the owner deserves. It's entirely reasonable what the owner does, is it not? To send people to ask for what's his due from his vineyard that they are renting from him. You see, the owner sends people in verse 2 and in verse 4 and in verse 5, we are told that he sent many others. Here's a patient owner seeking what is his due. During the Old Testament, we are constantly presented with God sending prophets to the people of God to urge them to live for him. 
to offer their lives to God, to give God his due. Again, entirely reasonable that God should expect the people that he has made to give him his due. But those who came, you see in verse 3, were really badly treated. Verse 3, they seized and beat him and sent him away. Verse 4, they struck the next man on his head and treated him shamefully. Another they killed. And some others they beat. It's quite a shocking picture, isn't it, of tenant farmers. Can you imagine this happening today, what the newspaper headlines would be? If the news was reporting on tenant farmers who had beaten people and sent them away, who had killed people and sent them away because somebody came to collect some rent from them. Well, the worst has not yet come. The climax comes in verses 6 and 7. You see, the owner thinks to himself, I've got one left to send, I'll send him. You see verse 6? He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Now don't miss how he's described here. It's very deliberate by Jesus. The father says... I have one left to send, a son, a son whom I love. He's got a beloved son to send. And do you remember the other readings that we, have, uh, we heard? Do you remember when Jesus was baptized? As he heard the voice coming from heaven, the voice which said, this is my beloved son, the one with whom I am well pleased. And then in chapter 9, when he was up on the mountain with two of his followers, and they heard the voice coming from heaven which said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You see, Jesus, the beloved son, comes from God to the leaders of Israel. Jesus, the loved son of the father, comes it's striking, isn't it? Jesus inserts himself here into this parable story as a character. And as one writer comments, that in this parable we see the gospel of Mark in miniature. The parable summarizes the whole story of Mark. Jesus comes to Israel as God's beloved son. Indeed, he comes to the world as God's beloved son. He calls people to listen to him. He comes with the authority of the Father. And the tenants who've been given such a wonderful vineyard, they reject him also. The religious leaders, no less, reject him. And before you start thinking, well, maybe Jesus could have made things a bit clearer for uh, the leaders Notice the deliberations of uh, the tenant farmers in verse 7. You see what they said? This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. You see, these tenant farmers, far from doing something in ignorance, know exactly what they are doing. They think by killing the heir, they will become the owners. They think they will have thrown off the yoke and they will have the authority 
for themselves. They will be the kingpins. They will have authority and dominion in their own place now. And in verse 12, they know the parable was written about them. And even more staggeringly and shockingly, they do not repent. Verse 12, they look for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against him. And just a few chapters on in Mark, we will see that they actually do then arrest Jesus and they try him and they crucify him on a cross. They will kill the son just as Jesus says in the parable. So the parable graphically rams home the extent of their crime in verse 8. You see, they kill the son and then unceremoniously they throw the dead, limp, beaten, bloodied corpse out of the vineyard. No thought for burial of this one. Tossing the body aside. It's quite an ugly picture, isn't it? You could say maybe surely we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't want to get rid of the heir, to throw off the authority of God so that we can be our own masters. We wouldn't want to seek to reject and get away from God's authority. And yet the Bible is consistently clear in the way it presents humanity. Humanity neither honor God nor give thanks to him. Rather, each does what is right in their own eyes. So here's a parable which peels back the pretense of our neutrality before God. And we might send away empty-handed the messengers which come to us. And yet, when the Son comes, with all the authority of the Father, all pretense of neutrality vanishes. And we want to get rid of him. Here's an accurate picture of humanity. But Jesus isn't finished and he asks a question in verse 9. What will will the master do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? We could say, what will the creator of the whole world do? What will the master do, the one who has leased this vineyard to these wicked tenants? to those who have brutally murdered his beloved son, tossing aside the body while they celebrate their victory. What will the creator of the world do to those who act in his world? Verse nine. He will come and kill those tenants. entirely appropriate really isn't it such rejection of authority as this would be abhorrent and demands justice now we could he couldn't it'd be awful if god says oh well i'll just leave them to get on with it abhorrent to think that god would be indifferent to the rejection of him and of his beloved son to those whom he gave authority and who he gave responsibility to and we're told that god won't tolerate that This is a picture of the rejection of the Israelite leaders because of their rejection of God and his son. And Jesus cements their rejection. And then you see in in verse 10, there comes 
this rather odd quote from the Old Testament, a quote from Psalm 118. And at this point, there becomes a great reversal in the story. You see in this psalm a great reversal where it says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The stone in the building site which is tossed aside because it seems useless becomes the most important stone. And it's a picture again of Jesus. Jesus crucified, tossed aside, rejected, sneered at, mocked, And when you see that, you think, there is the end. Jesus on the cross. Humanity is one. But you see, as the parable says, as the the quote from Psalm 118 says, that is by no means the end. That stone which is rejected becomes the chief cornerstone, the most important stone. Jesus, as we know, was raised to life again. And we see the great reversal. Jesus, who was dead, is now alive. The one rejected by the Jewish officials is now the cornerstone. Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. He now sits at the right hand of the Father. Do you see the great reversal? That stone which is tossed aside as useless now becomes the most important stone there is. Jesus, murdered and tossed aside, becomes the most important. His authority is enhanced. He now sits at the right hand of the Father in a position of all authority and power. And that's the great reversal which concerns everyone here. You see, for Jesus is not dead. He is alive and reigns. He still has that authority as God's son. He is still the divine man, the God who became man. And so the question is, how are you going to respond to Jesus' authority? How are you going to respond to God's authority? Everyone has a responsibility to submit to the authority of God. For as in the parable, God created the world. He made all things, including you and me. And we need to offer something to God. We owe respect to God's authority we owe all things to Jesus. Do I meet people who decisively reject that authority? They want nothing of it. I can remember one man, an angry voice, telling me the same old story. It had no relevance to me then, it has no relevance to me now, he said. And that Jesus had no claim over him. And yet the question is, what we see here is Jesus does have authority. He is exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is no longer dead. You see, although this story does speak specifically about the Jewish nation and about the leaders who rejected him at that time, the great reversal with that cornerstone becoming, the the stone that was rejected becoming the chief cornerstone shows it has relevance for everyone here now. We've all failed to honor the Son. We've all rejected the son. We all treat the son shamefully for we've not given him what he deserves. And so when we ask the question of Jesus in verse nine, what will the owner do? The answer is still the same. God will still punish those who reject him. 
You see, will we continue to reject God's Son or submit to the authority of the Father and of His Son? And if we are those who submit to the Lordship of Christ, then we are the wisest of all people. Indeed, submitting to Jesus means recognizing the truth and the reality of life. If you're a Christian here today, can I encourage you to keep doing that? Keep submitting to his authority. Keep being wise. When you are mocked in society and told that you are irrational for submitting to Jesus, remember that Jesus is still the one with all authority and power. When society says you can't appeal to Jesus as your authority, it is silly to do that. We now just must think what we as a society think. When they say that you are being evil because you do that, then have heart. Jesus does still have the authority. And if we are mocked and treated shamefully, then that's only natural as we follow the one who was mocked and treated shamefully. And as we see Jesus with this position of all power and authority, we need not fear in coming to him. Because he was the one who died on the cross and in doing that paid the penalty for our sins. Dying in our place, receiving the punishment we deserve, bearing the wrath of God as his son for us. Submitting to Jesus is a wonderful thing to do. Because, verse 9, he will destroy the wicked tenants, however, he will give the vineyard to others. We can receive the gift of God, the relationship with him, life everlasting in his presence, and the life lived under his authority is a good life. Most of all, because Jesus exercises his authority in sacrificial service. The Son of Man came to serve. You see what Psalm 118 says. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And you see how it finishes? This was the Lord's doing. And it was marvelous in our eyes. And it was marvelous in our eyes. We, as those who reject the authority of God, can see that we can be forgiven, we can be restored, we can be given all things. And that was the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that our natural tendency is to reject you, to seek to become the kings of our own world and of our own place in your world. Father, we've seen this morning how stupid and how evil that is. Please forgive us. And please enable us to live now as those who submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus, listening to him and doing what he says now. Help us to keep doing this when we're mocked and ridiculed, knowing that it's the wisest thing to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.